This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey there, beer fans. The music says it's time for another episode of Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan. And I'm chained to the rhythm. I mean, I'm Drew Beecham. (laughs) Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and bring you their tips, tricks, and secrets straight to your brain pan. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. All right. Well, and on today's episode, we have a lot of ground to cover because, well, we always have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, We're going to start with some uh, feedback. We've heard back uh, several things on a couple of our recent episodes, including a visit to the unfortunately named Correctional Department of Corrections. We have our pub. There's a big surprise here, folks. We're releasing some experimental results today. We finally got to it. Ooh. Yes, that's right. We're, uh, we're going to talk yeah. with uh, Joe Formanek about our results from our Brutan B experiment. You'll remember Joe is the guy who's bringing Brutan B to the United States. And we'll talk about what our Igor saw and what they didn't see and what it means for future directions of testing this thing out. And then, well, you remember we did those last two episodes full of Q&A. Well, it turns out that we had at least one question that... Denny and I just didn't really feel comfortable giving you an answer to. So we went and we dug out somebody who could give you an answer. And we're going to be talking about some gluten-free beer with James Neumeister. Yeah, James is uh, the owner and uh, head brewer at Groundbreaker Brewing in Portland, Oregon, and uh, has won numerous GABF medals for his gluten-free beers. So we figured that uh, we would get the real dope from a guy who's not a real dope. And then it's off into Q&A. Quick tip something other than beer, and then we'll get you out of here, and hopefully 
your commute will be done. <laughs> That's right. But before we get into that, we want to talk to you a minute about how you can support the podcast and our charities. You do that by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com, and down the right-hand side, you'll see a bunch of links you can click on. Uh, one of those is for Amazon, and if you click on that link when you buy anything from Amazon, we will get a little bit of money to help support the show, and it won't cost you a single cent. Uh, there's also links for the American Homebrewers Association, so you can join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. And there's a link where you can subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine. And when you do any of those things, once again, a little bit of money comes to us to help support the podcast and uh, everything that we do here. And maybe most important, if you click on the Patreon link, you can support our charity, which right now is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. We're trying to raise a thousand bucks for them to help the pooches. So uh, if you're a dog lover like we are, even if you're a cat lover, hey, my cats love dogs. So uh, click on the Patreon link, donate whatever amount you can and help us help the doggies. Yeah, remember, even a buck helps. That's right. Give a buck. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's time that we get into uh, some of these comments that we've gotten, huh? Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm grabbing some things from around the web and our email boxes. But uh, first one that I thought we had to go and revisit was James Morgan. And if you remember last episode, we did Brewing Disasters. And James Morgan provided one of our stories from down in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand, where, uh, well, he had the disaster with the linoleum. And security deposits and how to hide burnt linoleum and everything else. Uh, we, we, of course, said, I can't imagine him getting his security deposit back. But James actually reached out to us on Facebook and he said, Hi there, just listened to Brewing Disasters and got up to my melted lino. If it helps, I'm an electric brewer and used a stovetop to boil the evil decoction. Yes, decoctions are evil. And he also says, also, I did get my deposit back. Well, James, all I can say, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, all I can say is, well, I'm, I'm really glad you got your deposit back, and you have a better skill at hiding things from landlords than I did. Yeah, really, man. And I'm also glad to hear you were using an electric system indoors. We had uh, been a bit worried that maybe James had been using a, a propane burner indoors, but uh, he's not as crazy as we were accusing him of being. Yeah. Nope. He's just, uh, he's just a mad genius at hiding burnts. <laughs> All right. And then our, our next comment actually comes in from uh, Reddit, uh, from a user named Schlips, who was commenting on the last episode of uh, Brew Files that we released last week, uh, our brewing with uh, extract with Jay Ankeny. And Schlips says, Drew, your guest's brewing practices frighten me. On another note, I think my pH meter needs calibrating since the last time I brewed, it read 0.1 off the anticipated pH reading, according to Brew and Water Spreadsheet. So if you haven't listened to the episode, yeah, uh, Jay, Jay has some very old school methods of brewing that make the sort of modern scientific brewer who has to be super precise, very, very itchy, like a bad shot of Vicodin. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed Jay a lot because uh, he is a guy who knows what he wants to do and he knows how it works and damn it, it works for him. Yes, but hey, if... Your pH meter reading 0.1 degrees off of brewing water is your jammy jam, then jimmy jam away. That's right. 
And I'll uh, I'll take this next one because oh uh, oh wait no no uh, so- no no I get to read this because it's making fun of you. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and this one is our last feedback for the week is from the Correctional Department of Corrections. Uh, Stephen Goodall from Kent Bridge, Ontario, writes, "Hey guys." First of all, let me say how much I've been enjoying the recent question shows. I was listening to the last one when Denny was talking about water adjustment and the use of chalk. He started talking about using pickling lime and baking soda instead. All good on both for use, but he said that pickling lime was sodium hydroxide. Pickling lime is actually calcium hydroxide. I only note this because if someone mistakenly asked for sodium hydroxide, they'd end up getting lime, which is handy for dissolving bodies if you're into that kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not. Now I'm starting to wonder what Steven's hobbies are. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, it can also be used in a brewery as a caustic cleaner, and while it would raise alkalinity, it is more caustic than calcium hydroxide, although calcium hydroxide is also something to keep off the skin and be careful with. Nope, we can't even get it in Canada anymore because they're not so sure about it as a food additive. The second thing was that Martin notes in Brewing Wire to add this directly to the mash as it may boost the pH way too much without the grains to counteract it. The rest of your minerals are safe in water beforehand. Anyway... I know you said you weren't an expert. I'm not one either, by the way. But I thought these were important notes for the listeners. Cheers, Stephen. Sodium hydroxide, buddy, huh? Yeah, well, you know what? In my defense, I knew that was wrong as soon as I said it. Uh, I just could not think what the right uh, what, what the right beginning part of that was. And let's just be very clear right now. It's calcium hydroxide pickling lime that you want to uh, raise the pH of your beer. Just... Forget that I ever even said sodium hydroxide, yeah. right? The only places that caustic should be used are like how Stephen points out as a caustic cleaner in a brewery or as a drain opener. You know, that's right. This stuff is drain opener. That's how, that's how deadly it is. <laughs> or if you're really crazy stupid like me and feel like pretzels need tradition, then you use it to make your pretzels pretzly. But even, but even these days, people, people look too funny. And baking soda will also work if you're not into uh, dissolving your hands when you make pretzels. Yeah. So uh, we just want to also remind you that there was a new episode of The Brew Files out about a week ago, uh, episode seven with Jay Ankeny talking about his methods for making award-winning extract beer. So uh, you can head over to the website and listen to that and uh, get, get your extract on for a change. There you go. Hey, I'm thirsty. Yeah, me too, man. Let's head over to the pub and have a beer, shall we? Indeed. All right, we'll be right back talking about the beer life in the pub. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I've done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome to the pub. We are sitting here having a couple beers and getting ready to talk about the beer life. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? Well, I'm drinking a beer that when I initially saw it, I kind of dismissed it just out of hand. And then I had to give a Grand Hydro talk to the club last week. And 
picked it up because I realized what it was, and that's the Sierra Nevada Tropic Torpedo IPA, which is their newish IPA. I kind of think of it as a response to the whole tropical mango New England IPA type craziness uh, that they use a whole bunch of those tropical flavored hops in the torpedo device that they use in their regular torpedo. And I dismissed it out of hand because originally when I saw it, I thought it was, you know, another fruited IPA. Turns out it's pretty dang delicious. So I'm having another bottle. <laughs> that sounds great, man. Uh, I'm having a blueberry Berliner Weiss from DeGard Brewing in Tillamook, Oregon. Real, real small brewery, but highly regarded. They make spontaneously fermented barrel-aged beers, which, yes, it means that they're pretty sour most of the time. This is a really nice beer, nice balance of flavors, uh, a lot of acidity, of course, but uh, you get you get a, a hit of the fruit coming through, which kind of balances it out. Uh, nice beer, uh, hard to find, but if you get a chance, try it out. Anything from DeGard is going to be great. Yeah, two comments there. One, I think if you have a regular access to DeGard beers, I think I understand what your retirement fund is now. And two, uh, I think uh, that's negative 10 points from House Khan for using the B word. B word? Balance. Oh, yeah, right. Well, hey, you know what? I'm not some brewer that we're asking about, so I can do it, darn it. Okay, so as we're sitting here with this episode, Session Beer Day is a week or so in the past. I uh, hope that everybody got a chance to have a session beer or two on April 7th. Uh, if you had anything really good, please drop us an email or call our beer hotline, which is 626-765-1AL, and tell us about the session beer that you had and uh, if, what you thought about it. Yeah, well, did you have anything good? You know, it, it seems like a lot of session beers kind of like base themselves on British styles, uh, at least around here, there aren't a lot of breweries brewing them. But uh, in, in keeping with that, I went out and got myself uh, one of the few British styles I really enjoy, which is a Fuller's 1845. And while it didn't meet the session beer alcohol limit, it was still a darn good beer. I really like that beer a lot. You know, I, I guess I can't keep raving that I don't like British beers because I like that one. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Fuller's is no slouch in that department. Uh, for myself, I had my Grisette on tap. Ah, nice, nice. Yeah. And that's a nice sessionable beer. And if you just asked yourself, hey, what's a Grisette? Stay tuned. <laughs> right on. Well, and of course, also just recently in the past was April Fool's. And as we know, every year... On April Fool's, foolish things happen, because that's why we talked about the disaster stories. So I saw a couple of great beer stories. I think people are actually becoming more creative and less sort of obvious with some of their uh, their April Fool's stories. And some of them are actually real. So I, I wanted to talk about at least one that, that we saw that comes from our sponsor, the AHA, where they actually put out a video for their Pale Alio Diet that was... <laughs> absolutely hysterical right if you get a chance you have to go watch this because yeah it's just a perfect little thumb tweak at everything that we talk about as brewers and at, that people talk about with their diets uh and really well put together apparently the folks on the ha staff who put it together kept it secret from the marketing department until the very last minute because they didn't want them to see it until it was ready to go <laughs> that's great yeah and but everybody of course had a great reaction to it because it's really damn funny Cool. 
And then, of course, there was the Oregon Gray Ale story. <laughs> yeah, if you missed this one, uh, this was actually a homebrewer uh, uh, pulling a prank, and this was on the HA forum. Posted a picture of a brand new style that they were putting together, Oregon Gray Ale, and had a wonderful looking photo on there. Talked about oh, what was it? The like the right use of uh, Carafa as a. Uh, I'm trying to. Remember. This was from uh, NW Citrus. Yeah, and it talks about oh yeah the the key is special uh, the special color or the key to the special color is the correct proportion of the malts. And so the five pounds of Pilsner, five pounds of flaked wheat, 15 ounce of uh, malted oats, and then one ounce of Carafa 3 dehust. And, of course, with the caveat that you must use all of these exact ingredients because American Pilsner won't work. And below is this lovely picture of a beer that kind of looks like, well, you know, sort of a cross between a wit and a gray. Pilsner, but gray. Like, And people uh, people were falling for it on, uh, on the, <laughs> the forum. <laughs> it was so perfect to poke fun at. You know, sort of the whole thing about New England IPA and everything else that's going on right now. I actually had a Pilsner once that I'd made that kind of turned out to be that color, so I didn't find it so funny. Well, and that's just reminding you of bad things. <laughs> that's right. Show, show, uh, show, the, show, show us on the doll where the bad pint touched you. <laughs> well, and one of the other things that was uh, great for April Fool's Day was my, uh, my good buddy Aaron Boussat uh, put out an article in New School Beer about high pH basic beer as opposed to the acid beers and uh, quoted me in in there as uh, uh, talking about how, how to brew a beer with a high ph so and i just got a question today asking if that article was for real and all i can say is remember it was published april 1st yeah well i can tell you i knew it wasn't real just because you hadn't been talking incessantly about it <laughs> that's right well and then i do want to, the last one because this was, I thought, a very clever little thing that happened. Uh, because we are all now predisposed to take anything that we see on April 1st on the internet as, you know, not real. Right? And, you know, sort of like, oh, no, of course not. Ha <laughs> funny, April 1st. So the brewery uh, down in Placentia, California, just a little bit south of me, and that's brewery, B-R-U-E-R-Y, put out a, a notice that they were starting a brand new beer company called Offshoot Brewing Company that was going to be focusing on making canned IPAs and other styles of that vein. And, you know, full marketing logos, full everything else. And I know one of the marketing people at the brewery. And <laughs> I, it looked absolutely perfect, spot on and professional, like you'd expect a beer company to pull off as a, as a joke. Turns out it's not a joke. Patrick, uh, Patrick Brewing Company have launched a, a new brewing company called Offshoot Brewing Company. And, yeah, it's doing three IPAs uh, that they poured on uh, April 1st. Uh, Delayed Gratification Juicy East Coast IPA, Out of Context West IPA, and Perjury Hazy Double IPA. And it's hysterical. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, you have to remember that the, the brewery has grown leaps and bounds in the in, in the years it's been open and so yeah the fact that they're pulling this off even if this is just a temporary thing but they actually put the beers out freaking brilliant and i guess the uh, the other thing we want to talk about is big brew day coming up sponsored by the american homebrewers association it's may 6th the first saturday in may uh we want you to get together with your friends with your club 
or even just brew by yourself. But the idea is to see how many people we can get brewing around the world all at the same time. There are three official recipes uh, for the day coming from the next edition of How to Brew. Palmer finally got that done, did he? Uh, I don't think it's um, done yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But you can find the official recipes at homebrewersassociation.org, or you can just brew whatever you want to brew for the day. Uh, register your site at the uh, AHA website, homebrewersassociation.org, and after you've gotten done brewing, tell them how many people were there, how much you brewed. They'll add it up to the world total, and we'll see if uh, maybe we can beat last year's uh, numbers. Yeah, it, and it's always great. I mean, I I love any time that you can get homebrewers together and do I don't know brewing because I think you get <laughs> I think you get a lot of a lot of value out of it. This is an art that is best done by doing. And I'm trying to see I I forget. I mean, they, they're doing thousands of gallons per year now. At every event. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Was it like 8,000 last year or something like that? Yeah. I mean, it was something utterly insane. So come help join the totals and, and build it up. But hey, if you're not doing a big brew day and you happen to be in Southern California, you can come hear me speak at the Southern California Homebrewers Festival in Temecula, California. Details available at homebrewers.org. Yeah. You know, and uh, bring your earplugs too. Yeah. <laughs> That's for later. You know, I just have to get even once in a while. That's for later in the night when I when I'm snoring. Yeah, right. The last thing we want to mention is uh, Homebrew Con coming up this June in Minneapolis, the 17th through 19th of June. Uh, we're going to be doing a seminar together with uh, Malcolm and Marshall from Brewlosophy called "Hold My Beer and Watch Me Science." Uh, so I hope uh, if you're there at the conference, you'll come and hear us talk. It should be entertaining and hopefully even a bit educational if we screw up and accidentally throw some real information in there. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that we will once again be recording a podcast live from the trade show floor from the booth of our good friends at Brewcraft. We don't have an exact time and date for that yet, so stay tuned and we'll let you know. But please come by and see us when we do the podcast. Uh, we'll be taking live questions and comments. And because it's live, we can't even shut you off if you like are making fun of us or something. So We never have bought that mute switch. Yeah, that's right. So please, anyway, come by and see us at HomebrewCon. We'll let you know when. And hey, you know, who knows? Maybe there might be an impromptu podcast meetup. You know, stop and get some beers. Depends upon where we're at. But if you have ideas, reach out and let us know. Podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If, you, if you'd be curious and want to do a podcast meetup and actually have a chance to, you know, drink beer with people who like to drink beer, then, uh, yeah, just let me know. Because there will be nobody else there at the conference who likes it. No, everybody else there just hates it. They just pretend. All right. <laughs> well, I think that's enough drawing. Okay. I think it's time for us yeah. to get down to work. Okay, we're going to uh, finish off these beers. Head over to the lab and uh, talk to Joe Formanek and get the long-awaited results of our Brutan experiment. So stick around. We'll be right back. Why East is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham to bring you the Why East private collection strains for 2017. Our second quarter features a great variety of strains for saisons and related styles as we shift into spring and the warmer weather ahead. With their rustic and refreshing profiles and versatile pairings, there's no better way to welcome the new season. 
Try something funky with our Cezanne Brett blend. Go classic Belgian with beer to guard. Or discover Forbidden Fruit's unique flavors in a wit beer. All right, and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, and I know it's the one that so many of you look forward to. That's right, we're here in the lab, the Bunsen burners are going, the Jacob's ladders are buzzing, and mad science is all in the air. So we're actually coming back to revisit on an experiment that we launched, well, late last year. Man, we got to get faster about this, Danny. Uh, but late last year, uh, where we took a brand new product that's uh, just recently come onto the market to us, and decided to start playing around with it. And that was the Brutan B experiment. But hey, I'm not here alone. Who's here with me? <laughs> we have uh, Joe Formanek back to talk hey, about Brutan B. Hi, Joe. Thanks for taking the time to join us today, man. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, believe me, uh, we, we enjoy it. So, uh, Joe, why don't you tell people just a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and uh, why you're here today. Sure, sure. Yeah, Joe Formanek. I, um, I'm a director of new product development at a company, Echinomoto, um, North America. And one of my, um, one of the things I support is the brewing industry. Uh, we do have ingredients, uh, for flavor, for a lot of other things. But one thing we do have for the brewing industry is tannic acid or brew tan. Brew tan is used for clarifying, for stabilizing, and uh, one of my roles is to get out there and kind of spread the word about it. Great. And, you know, I, it's very interesting to watch homebrewers' faces when you tell them there's a product that will improve their beer that's a tannic acid. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> everybody yeah, been... a, yeah, everybody has that, you know, that negative thought about panic acid. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not that astringency and, you know, from the grain, you don't want that. But the role of tannic acid is a huge one, and uh, there are some very positive, uh, you know, positive tannic acids out there that can be used. Joe, just real quick, before we get into the experiment, uh, can you remind people, so what are these the impacts that Brutan B is supposed to have for brewers. Okay. Well, Brutan B has a number of important uh, qualities uh, when you use it in brewing. Um, first off, it helps with clarifying. Uh, so in the boil or in the mash or actually even later on in further processing, it helps it, it helps precipitate out proteins that can uh, cause chill haze or permanent haze as well as precipitate out ions like iron or copper that later on uh, might be important to deliver a like an oxidized character. So by using the butan, you're able then to eliminate those aging issues that you might have with oxidation and have a beer that is quite clear as well. Now, now I want to do an experiment where we take Brutan B and put it into a New England IPA and see what happens to the haze. <laughs> Maybe make a, a New England IPA I actually like. Uh, yeah, you know what? In, in, interestingly enough, we actually have another product called, uh, right now called Pinalo 2, that helps uh, maintain a haze. So that might be perfect for that. <laughs> That's uh, what those that guys should be looking at. Huh? Yeah, really. Uh, All right. What's it out? Let's talk the experiment. Uh, you were kind enough to send out to our Igors uh, samples of the Brutan B product because it's still not available to homebrewers yet, not, at least not easily. Right. Uh, although I understand there, there are things yeah. afoot that may, may change. We're working on it. Yeah, we're working on it. Exactly. All right. So 
we you sent out uh, Brutan B to a bunch of our Igors. We had the Igors actually. Uh, we gave them a free for all because the idea was okay. Well, the Brutan B effect is supposed to be you know a relatively generalized thing, and we can't really make our Igors go and brew another bo- blonde beer again and again and again. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess they don't want to drink a blonde. They've let beer us know how they feel about that. So variety is a good thing. <laughs> So we actually had seven of our Igors come back to us with results, and they were pretty uh, wide-ranging. But just to remind everybody, what we'd ask people to do was take the Brutan B that they, that they received from Joe. Uh, we gave a recommended dosing rate, uh, which was a, a quarter teaspoon uh, per five gallons of sparge slash match water, and a half a teaspoon dissolved into a beer slurry and added to the boil at 16 minutes. Uh, very tiny amount, but I, I also understand that you guys have a new hydration process, and we'll talk about that later. But, but we had, uh, we had the Igors follow that process with whatever recipe it was that they wanted to do. Uh, go take lots and lots of photos because the idea was to observe, okay, does Brutan B, uh, make a difference in, you know, the laundering efficiency? Does it take, make a difference in work clarity? Does it make a difference in perceived color and haze? And then finally also, you know, does it make a perceived dis- difference in the flavor? We got back seven results. And Denny, you want to talk about the results? Yeah, um, we were, I was just trying to do, add this up here. Looks like we had a total of 52 tasters um, who tasted the beers brewed by our seven brewers. That gives us a pretty wide uh, group of tastings. Um, a lot of the results failed to achieve significance, but again, we were doing that strictly on a flavor basis and uh, not a how long the the beer is going to last basis or what it looks like basis. Um, so what I found, let's just jump right into the comments because for me, the numbers are boring. Uh, what I what I found interesting was the number of people who said things like they found the Brutan beer to be smoother, the flavors were better integrated, and that's kind of what I found myself in in my own usage of it. Um, and just you know, to to add to our data here, I'm going to read a post from. Uh, a friend named Ken who posted on the Brews Brothers forum. He's been experimenting with this stuff for the last year or so since I first uh, mentioned it on the forum. Uh, he and a bunch of other guys have been ordering it from Australia. They were so interested in checking it out. Um, he says, uh, the aroma was just right. I took a sip. This was with his Border Town Dark Lager, a beer that he grew, uh, brews frequently, so he's real familiar with it. The aroma was just right. I took a sip and noticed something similar to the first time I used Bhutan almost a year ago. The beer has that unbelievable soft, smooth, silky character. I can't say that I've noticed this on every beer that I've made with Brutan, so either it's something else, my taste buds, my imagination, or whatever. But I ended up having two glasses of it, and the beer is just dynamite all the way around. Uh, and, yeah, and Ken goes in on to say... I want to stress that I have no idea what Brutan is doing or not doing. This soft, soft, silky, smooth character is something that I have noticed in some of my Brutan beers, but not all of them. But I don't remember ever experiencing this character before I used Brutan. I don't know what that says, but all, that's all I've got. I'm looking forward to hearing the findings of your Brutan study. 
Um, and that's, that is very much my impression of the beers that I've made with brew tan. And that is very much, uh, some of the comments that we got from the brewers and the tasters that the, the beer seemed smoother, silkier, more integrated. Uh, one of, one of the brewers even said that he's not going to be brewing without brew tan anymore. And that's, that's very much the way I feel about it. I just uh, made a batch of my rye IPA, which is a beer I know very, very well and, uh, use brew tan in it using the, the latest dosings and uh, rehydration procedures and stuff like that. And, I will swear that this is the best batch of rye IPA that I have ever made. And, uh, it has now motivated me to go on and do the same thing. The Igors did and make back to back batches with and without brew tan, uh, just so I can see how crazy I really am. <laughs> but I can, I can tell you, I have been using brew tan in most of my beers since I got that sample from you a year ago, Joe. And I I really think that I can tell a difference. Now, I'm the guy who raves about confirmation bias and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm not going to swear that I'm not experiencing that. Damn it, man. These beers turn out great. (laughs) Well, obviously, you're a great brewer as well. So, you know, that that, that definitely helps with that. Well, you Um, you must have missed our April Fool's show about my brewery from hell. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, you know, they, yeah, thanks for those comments. I, you know, and I've actually been using it myself for a few years. You know, actually, when we started handling it, um, just about two and a half years ago, and I started using it in every batch that I grew. You know, be it blonde ale through imperial stouts. You right. know? And um, when I first started brewing with it, I, I did do that side by side. You know, I did, you know, just just as a comparison. I took a bunch of pictures and all that, too, just, to, you know, just for my own edification and all that. And, yeah, you know, it, it, it worked. I mean, it, it really, I was, I was convinced right off the bat that it really gave a difference, you know, to the beer. And, um, and really, and even when I've gone out now, too, you know, to some commercial breweries, when I've... Uh, helped out, you know, when we're trying to promote it to craft brewers, you know, I've had some brewers that have been brewing on their systems, you know, thousands of beers, and they make these comments about, wow, look at that, you know, all the, you know, all the hot break, you know, how much more they're getting, or even in the mash, how much more precipitation they're getting, you know, just so much more protein is getting taken out that the resulting work then becomes so clear, and very little recirculation is needed, you know, so it's a... Get some great comments like that. Right, yeah. And speaking of comments, we got one here from our Igor Ryan Casey, who says, I found that the Brutan beer was a bit brighter and had a little fresher flavor. I was able to tell the beers apart on two out of three blind triangle tests. That's that's pretty damn good, man. That is good. That's fantastic. So, Drew, you want to say anything yeah, about the numbers? Well, and I, Yeah, and I think the, the real story comes in. You know, we have a couple of the Igors... Uh, that we need to reach back out to because they said they were going to hold on to some for, uh, you know, testing aging uh, characteristics and see if that makes a difference, uh, since that's another big question. But I, I think really a good portion of the tale of the value of Brutan B is in seeing those photos that we captured from the Igors. And in some of them, in some of them, it doesn't look like it made that much of a difference, but in some of them, you see very, very striking differences uh, in the break that goes into the into the carboys. 
And it's like, oh, well, okay, there we go. And I guess I guess we should also mention that uh, due to various miscommunications, not all of the brewers used the Brutan the same way, and uh, not all of them used it correctly. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that, uh, we can separate that out and, uh, you know, see, see what kind of impact that had. Uh, I have, I have been following your latest recommendations and getting great results. So why don't you go over one more time how Brutan B is supposed to be used? Okay. Well, the Brutan B typically is used in both the mash as well as in the boil. Now, once you add it into the mash water, obviously, you know, it's just going into fresh water. It hydrates quite quickly. You know, you might, it might turn a little darker. You'll notice that, but the resulting beer doesn't come out any darker. No. You know? But the big difference, though, is in the boil, because the original recommendation was to take some of your warts, you know, so, uh, you know, it's cool off your boil, mm-hmm. and uh, and then add the brew can to that for rehydration before then adding back into the boil for the last 16 minutes. And now that has been changed. So now instead of adding it to cooled wort, just add it to your water. You know, just add it right to your brewing water. You know, just a small glass of the, of the brewing water. You know, so like you know, you know, like a quarter of a cup or whatever. But then just add that root can to that and allow it to dissolve, you know, and it'll become a very clear solution. And by then adding that back to your boil, then you have a lot more activity. What's happening is that when you add it to the wort, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it, a lot of that activity is acting upon that small amount of wort that's in that glass. So, you know, that makes you're perfect a little, sense, yeah. Yeah, you're getting a lot of precipitation out of that, but it's actually... You know, it's taking out some of the effect in the total beer. So, yeah, just add it into water, then add that into your boil, and that's the that's the best way to go. And you add it to your sparge water too, right? Not just the mash water. Oh yeah, yeah. No, the sparge water too. Yeah. So any water that goes into the system, you can add it into. That's correct. And and the recommendation is a quarter teaspoon per five gallons of mash or sparge water. Correct. That is correct. And then half a teaspoon uh, mixed with uh, mixed with your brewing water at uh, 15 minutes before end of boil? Is- yeah, 15 or 16. You know, as, as long as you add it in before you add other clarifiers, you know, any kettle findings like uh, carrageenan, you know, Irish moss or, or wolf lock or that, if, if it goes in there first, then it's great. Um, if you add it in at the same time, it, there might be a little bit of an effect between the two because, honestly... Adding in brew can along with the wolf flock or along with the uh, Irish moss um, in combination, you know, if they're both in the beer, they work great. You know, I mean, you actually get even better clarifying with the two as compared to just one individually. But the brew can still needs to be in there first before right. you add in the other. Cool. Then at least I've been doing that part right. Great. <laughs> finally, uh, finally, Denny yeah, does something right. right. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know, as they say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. <laughs> so, obviously, it can't be science if you don't have numbers, because remember, our good, our, our good avatar and inspiration, Adam Savage, formerly of the Mythbusters, has always said that the only difference between screwing around in science is whether or not you write it down. That's right. So here are the results that we got from our seven uh, Igors, and we're still trying to figure out a good way to 
you know, do a composite of this. And we had some, uh, we've had some input from some various statisticians. I just have to get off my butt and actually do something with it. But we, what we saw out of the seven trials, six of them failed to achieve significance, at least according to a P value of 0.05. Uh, we did have a total of 59 tasters. The one test that did actually hit was from uh, one of our longtime Igors, Jason Mundy. He got five out of seven of his tasters successfully identifying the beer for a p-value of 0.045. So that's uh, just over the line. He actually, he did a German lager and, uh, or sorry, he did a Munich Dunkel and followed all the Brutan uh, B instructions. And his, his comment out of it that I liked was, I tasted the Brutan B and Wurt Slurry. Wow. Was that puckering? <laughs> there needs to be a Brutan B challenge on YouTube. So we, we heard this actually. I'm surprised. We heard this from a couple of Igors who did the brewing experiment that they tasted the Brutan B at various points and everybody had the same reaction. Don't do it. Yep, yep. <laughs> really? Yeah, we've told that's, you guys not to like do that. tasting hop extract, you know? Yeah, basically. Like, you one know, one of those things, you know it's going to be terrible, but you can't stop yourself. <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, a lot of different tannins out there. And, and yeah, the brew tan, it has less astringency than just about all the other tannins. But still, you have a concentration of it. It's going to taste a little astringent. Yeah, that's right. A bunch of our other Igors reported back results where they had like two out of nine, which is obviously a fairly random. Uh, two out of six, also fairly random. Uh, same thing with another taster that had two out of six. We saw some of these where we got up to like five, uh, five or six positive results. Uh, and all told, I mean, it really came into that if you took the whole pool of tasters, you know, they got it about 46, 47% of the time, which is a little bit better than random, but not enough for us to draw significance from on this particular test. Right. Now, that's for that's for just the flavor test, because remember, what we did here was we asked our Igors to do blind tastings, you know, the classical triangle test. And we're fairly certain that there's a also a visual impact to the stuff, which normally you do in a... In a you do your flavor test blind so that you don't actually bias people and say, Oh, look, that one's clear. Now what I don't know. And I Denny, Denny, I don't know if you, if you have good advice on this or, Hey, I know we have people out there who listen from brewery Q and a departments. Uh, what is a good way of doing an unbiased visual test? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't see that that, what, what is the problem? I mean, you pour two glasses of two different beers and decide which one looks clearer. Well, I know, but I'm just worried. <laughs> well, hey, you know what? This this means that we just have to hit the books because I, I want to make sure that we're gonna, that we're going to do this yeah, correct. Right. Well, uh, I intend and, to uh, continue my trials. I'm like I said, I'm going to brew a couple batches of rye IPA and see what happens. And since we're heading into summer, it's Pilsner season, so uh, I'll brew a couple batches of uh, German Pils with and without brew tan. And uh, that should be that should be an interesting test. And also, yep. uh, with all of these, I intend to bottle some and uh, set them away for a while so I can uh, maybe try and get a handle on what some of the long-term effects are. Okay. Now, curious, um, when you bottle, are you bottling on yeast or uh, already, uh, you know, just clarified? I will bottle out straight out of the keg because keg. I'm okay. lazy. Is, <laughs> you know, plus that, as far as I'm concerned, that's a worst case situation too, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, that would be because the yeast in the bottle would help scrub out some of the oxygen, you know, right off the bat. And then, you know, I, I've seen it where I have, 
I brewed some light beers, you know, some blonde ales. Right. That um, I just keep in the cellar, and, and, and I, I revisited them about two years later, and they're still fresh. Of course, there's yeast in the bottle, too, but it's a bit unusual. I mean, my beers typically with the yeast in the bottle, maybe a year, and then, especially with the light beers, then you can tell the difference. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, I mean, plus not only that, but you, you can see the oxidation in the light beers, too. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I know we, have, we haven't we uh, have released the results yet for it, but we do have our keg purge experiment coming up, where we have some of our testers doing uh, keg experiments uh, with different levels of oxygen in the keg. And I can tell you that we're, we saw some really dramatic wart darkening photos just happening out of people who did carbonated beers in unpurged kegs versus uh, purged kegs. So now I'm wondering... If that actually comes through, if that actually shows an impact, if you then combine that with Brutan B, can you make immortal beer? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, man, people have been waiting for that for a long time. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) That would be interesting. Well, I was going to say, Joe, so before we we leave this, I mean, obviously we have some avenues that we need to re-explore. I mean... Hopefully soon, Brutambi will be more easily available to homebrewers. I know there are people who are ordering it out of Australia and getting it shipped up here to the U.S. Um, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, what I want to see is more people trying it and giving us their impressions. Exactly. I mean, and really, I, I really appreciate all the people who have that dedication to actually send out to Australia you know, to get the product. Um and we are definitely working now to get it into homebrew shops, you know. So we're hoping very soon um, we will have some agreements so that uh, it will be distributed, you know, in you know, hopefully nationwide, so that brewers, homebrewers, would be able to uh, access it easily. Well, and the good thing is that once this is available to homebrewers in the U.S., I mean, it's not an expensive product. I mean, we're not talking about you know spending scads and scads of money. So it's relatively cheap insurance, and to me, it has more promise to it than the old brewer's advice that people used to hand out, which is, hey, you know what really helps give your beers longevity? Put some cinnamon in a mash. <laughs> if you put the cinnamon in the mash, that's an antioxidant. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a lot more valid than cinnamon in the mash for sure. And I've I mean I've tried a different a bunch of different things. I've tried uh metabisulfite in the mash, uh, I've ascorbic acid, all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, again, without being scientific about it, my impression is that Brutan just is so much better than that kind of stuff. There's no comparison whatsoever. Well, I'll also say that when you go and you know take some of the newer malts that we're seeing, particularly some of the ones from the micro maltsters, right. I'm thinking back to the Laughlin malt that we got from Ireland last year, didn't I? Right. Yeah, you know, that already does a pretty good job of throwing a, a break. But then when you combine it with the Brutan B, suddenly it's like, bam! Yeah, I... Uh- I just uh, brewed for the first time recently with some uh, mecha grade malt, which is made over in Madras, Oregon, a, a fantastic malt, and uh, used Brutan on it. And what I'm, what I'm, I'm really curious to see how this can even like kick up that be- that malt flavor some more, uh, because my my feeling is that if you're starting with something great and then you uh, use something to make it greater, then that's a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Denny, would that be Mecha Grade, our sponsor? 
That would be Mecha Grade, our sponsor. Yes, uh, it's uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's great but, stuff. What can I say? You know, even if they weren't our sponsor, I'd be saying that. So, Joe, I I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to join us today. Uh, hope things work out to get Brutan into the commercial market and homebrewers' hands soon. Thank you very much, Danny and Drew. I really. Again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on this with you, and um, and certainly if there's any questions that anybody has, um, I think you you sent there was some information out there for my contact, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, we have your email address, and we will post it again with this episode when it comes out. That sounds great. Yeah, happy to help out. Great. Thanks so much, Joe. Have a great rest of the day. Okay. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye bye. Well, you know, I always like it whenever we can have somebody like Joe on. I mean, remember, uh, Joe not only works for Angie Moto, but, I mean, he is a massively award-winning brewer. Yeah, so. that's the other thing we forgot to mention, that uh, Joe is not just kind of like pulling this stuff out because uh, he's trying to sell Brutan. Uh, he has used it, and Joe is a multi-multi-award-winning home brewer, and uh, Brutan is one of the keys to his success. But I do definitely think we want to revisit and do some more exploration around the topic because I don't think we completely covered everything that that we should in order to understand whether or not Brutan has an impact. So I think that calls for more experimentation. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Um, the, I, and I intend to experiment more, and uh, I hope that Brutan gets out into the retail channel before too long so that more people can... Uh, give it a try and see what they think. Uh, I think that uh, I'm going to keep using it for sure. Well, I mean, it is just kind of, well, relatively cheap insurance, you know, if you can get your hands on it. So that's going to be the big, the big push, I think. And, you know, if, if this has some actual science behind it, uh, and remember, Anjiomoto has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, Anjiomoto's actual initial claim to fame were they're the people who first synthesized MSG, uh, so they've been in the chemical world for a good long while. Yeah. But if there's some actual science behind this, I think I, I think it'll be interesting. And I mean, I did notice in our results that you know, a couple of a couple of the Igors who are doing loggers seem to have better results than Igors who are doing ales. And that might be another uh avenue of exploration. I, I suppose so, although, you know, I have done only ales so far and had great results and uh when I'm seeing people out there on forums who've tried it, it seems like they're having equal results with both. So could just be a coincidence. Could be that there's something to it. All right. More testing. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back with more fun stuff. Stick around. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
So, we've done science. Now it's time for us to kick back and, well, actually get a proper answer to a question that we got uh, for our last couple <laughs> yeah. of episodes. It was all about gluten-free brewing, and it came in as a voicemail from Renee. We'll hear the voicemail in, in a little bit. But the thing is that Danny and I, I mean, I've made a gluten-reduced beer. I've made a gluten-free beer once. Wasn't very impressed with the results. We reached out and got in touch with uh, Denny's good friend James from Groundbreaker Brewing Company in Portland, Oregon. And he sat down with us for a little while to actually walk us through some of the ins and outs and the challenges about making gluten-free beer and make it so that it's good and not boring. Hi, my name is Renee Weinberger, and I've been listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast for a while now. And I always like the great suggestions you have. Um, I was just listening to the episode with the ask all of the questions, and I have a question about malt that is a tricky one. I've been trying to brew um, gluten-free beer for a couple friends of mine, and I've made gluten-reduced beer with some success using the clarity from, but I want to try and make a totally gluten-free one so I don't have to say that I haven't had a test of it. Um, I've Try making an IPA with sorghum syrup, and that's what I can get from my local homebrew supply shop. And I have also a friend who's going sorghum and is going to try to have me make a beer out of sorghum syrup. Unfortunately, and I made an IPA with it because I thought maybe the hops would be a good choice for that. Unfortunately, it tasted really thin. There was no no body to it, no mouthfeel to it. it. It more resembled a wine or a mead, which I guess kind of made sense. In, because it's not, I wasn't using the grain part. And I can't think of any good way to add the body things that I want in it without the suggestion of food. Even if I did add something like maltodextrin, I'm worried that it would still have whatever, residual gluten or, or, or something that, you know, I, I want it to be completely gluten-free all the way through. And so I'm just stuck trying to think of what I could probably get that I could use for additional mouthfeel using sorghum syrup in a beer. And um, any any suggestions would be would be useful. Thank you, guys. Bye. All right. So there we go. Now, we always love when we get questions that we can't answer. So we uh, stopped. We scratched our heads. We thought about it for a little bit. And, well, we decided we're completely out of our depths when it comes to gluten-free beer. <laughs> that is right. So... So uh, we uh, we posted this on Facebook and got a reply from my uh, dear friend James Newmeister, who runs Groundbreaker Brewing in Portland, and has won more GABF medals for gluten-free beer than uh, most people have won for anything whatsoever. So we've got James on the phone with us. How you doing today, James? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for uh, getting in here with us. We really appreciate it. So, uh, Renee has this question about wanting to make a gluten-free beer at home. She wants it to be 100% gluten-free, not just reduced gluten. And in trying to use sorghum, she keeps coming up with really thin beers. So I guess, I guess my first question before we get into how to do it right is, is it even possible for a home brewer to make a 100% gluten-free beer? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's that's how I started out. <laughs> yeah, I remember, man. <laughs> uh, I, so, um, you know, and is sorghum the best way to go about that, using that for a base? Sorghum is a, is a, a 
great base. It's easy to acquire. It, um, it provides a nice foundation for the beer. It's, um, you know, you definitely want to look into having some kind of other specialty uh, grains to go with it. Um, you know, sorghum on its own is not that wonderful. Right. So, um, and, and that's kind of what she discovered. So what would you recommend, like, if she wants to make a gluten-free IPA, what would be some of your recommendations for how to go about that? Well, um, starting with the maltodextrin, when we started, um, there, there wasn't maltodextrin that we could get that, that we were aware of that um, we knew the source of it, you know, where it came from, what it was derived from. But Greece has a organic tapioca maltodextrin that is all tapioca. And once we discovered that, that really opened the door for us with having a lot of different beer styles. Um, we can't manipulate uh, your residual sugar and the mash the way you can with barley. So being able to just add maltodextrin to our beers um, to, to change the outcome on the terminal really, you know, opened things up. And so um, I did the math on, you know, doing a five-gallon batch of a straight sorghum beer. I would say about 19 ounces of maltodextrin would get you in the, the final gravity range you're looking for for an IPA. Okay. Um. The other, you know, for a simple at-home, um, you know, sorghum-based gluten-free beer, the thing that I would probably do to make a decent beer is the Bob's Red Mill Kasha. It's a toasted buckwheat. It takes forever to toast buckwheat. It's much simpler just to buy it toasted. <laughs> you know, a pound of that and a, and a fat um, in the water while you're bringing your, you know, you're bringing your water up to a temp. Um, don't mill it. It doesn't need to be milled. It will break down rapidly on its own. Right. Um, when I, when I, my experience in milling it is it immediately turns to concrete. Like you just make a sidewalk <laughs> out of it. Um, so, uh, that's a really nice way in that buckwheat will bring a ton of residual sugar to your beer and a lot of body and a lot of flavor. It's wow. pretty nice actually. Wow. Um, I never would have guessed that. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a, there's a lot in there that the yeast won't touch. Um, other suggestions I would have for a gluten-free IPA, I would definitely, um, you know, I, one of the things that I've, that I've kind of just come to from doing hundreds of batches is I always account for about seven IBUs of bitterness from the sorghum. The sorghum's got a little bit of a bitter, they call it like the sorghum twang or something like that. Um, and when we did finally get all of our beers lab tested, I, my calculations for IBUs were very, very, very close. So I, I always undercut my calculation by seven IBUs when I'm when I'm doing my hops. Right. Um, another thing would be, you know, don't don't shoot for really high IBUs. Focus on late additions. You don't need a lot of bitterness. You don't need a lot of sharpness. The sorghum is going to be a little sharp. So, you know, making it sharp with hops isn't really necessary. Um, so, so concentrate your hops like on flavor and aroma and not bitterness, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, it would, you know, bitter, bitter to like 40, 45 and leave it at that. Okay. Um, what, about, what about yeast choice? Is that going to make a big difference? You, well, if you want your beer to be gluten-free, you need to start with the yeast that's gluten-free. Most yeast are sold um, in a barley wort. Um, Safale and Lalaman, both their dry yeasts are both um, gluten free. They're growing up on um, uh, molasses, mm -hmm. 
So both of those are entirely safe. But yeah, if you're pulling yeast from other beer or you're buying yeast that's, you know, liquid, um, most likely it is not gluten-free. Okay. I, I think that Y yeast does make a couple of their strains with a gluten-free medium, but I, I, I'm not positive about that. Yeah. And, and I know it's not everything, so. Yeah. All right. Well, any other any other tips? I mean, you said obviously finding this uh, maltodextrin made out of tapioca was a was a godsend in terms of opening up beer styles. Any other tips for branching out just beyond, you know, say a gluten free IPA? Well, yeah. You know, the the thing you know when I started this, my mind was kind of pointed at if it has starch and it doesn't have a lot of oil, you can you know dry it out, roast it, mash it, and make you know make beer out of it. Um, so there's, you know, there's all kinds of interesting root vegetables. There's things, you know, we use a lot of chestnuts. We use a lot of lentils, um, that we roast and we mash. Um, the, the sky is kind of, you know, I, I know a lot of people will take rice and they'll toast it and then they'll cook the rice, um, you know, like you would to eat it and then they'll mash that. There's, the sky is kind of limited. We recently made a garbanzo bean beer, um, you know, like I said, if it's low in oil and it has some starch, you can you can pull something out of it. And do you use do you use amylase enzyme when you're using stuff like that? Or we do we we use a fungal based amylase enzyme for our mashing. Wow, man, I'm I'm blown away. You have really put some serious study into doing gluten free. Well, the you know the the thing we say is you know there's like ten thousand years of recipe development with barley, and there's like. 12 is with gluten-free, you know, <laughs> right. without barley. Right. So, um, there's a lot to be learned. So, uh, I have, I have one last question on a personal note. Uh, are you still making St. Denny? We, we didn't make St. Denny this year. We, it, it had a three-year run. Uh, this year we made a cascading dark ale in place of it for our winter season. All, but it, it'll be back. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> I love that beer, man. I really do. Uh, it's one of those things that I would never have known it was a gluten-free beer if I didn't know that it came from you. So uh, great job on that one. Thank you very much. And, and you know, with a name like that, who can refuse it? <laughs> you, are the, you are the saint. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. Okay, we have been talking to James Neumeister of Groundbreaker Brewing in uh, Portland, Oregon, about gluten-free brewing for the home brewer. James, thanks so much, man, for joining us today, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. So, if you need to make a gluten-free beer at home, that's how you do it. And believe me, uh, James knows a lot about it. Hopefully, if that's what you're trying to do, his advice will help you out to make a gluten-free beer that you can actually be proud of, because let me tell you, his are astounding, and you would probably never know they were gluten-free unless uh, somebody told you. Okay, we're going to uh, take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll have uh, a few questions that we'll try to answer and uh, the quick tip of the week, along with something other than beer. Stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. 
Welcome back. Our first question comes from Mallard on the website. You want to go for it, Drew? Yeah, it says here, a couple questions here. First, I have temperature control and the ability to brew lagers, but I don't have the patience. My brewing philosophy, omitting the word balance, very good, uh, would be to brew Mm -hmm. the best beer possible as fast as possible. So what do you all think about brewing lager recipes with ale yeast? And if I was able to do so with any success, how would I enter the beers into competitions? I have a four-month-old at home, so I really can't join any clubs and don't know any home brewers. So the only feedback I can get are through competitions. Thanks for any response, and I love the podcast. So, Danny, what do you think about Mallard's question? You, you certainly can brew pseudo loggers, I call them, with ale yeast. I did it for a number of years before I had uh, a method of temperature control. And uh, temperature control is not Mallard's issue. It's a, a question of getting them done quickly. And to tell you the truth, Mallard, there's no reason that a lager really has to take much, if any longer, than an ale. Um, if you uh, take a look at uh, Homebrew All-Stars, which I'm sure you have a copy of, uh, Mike Tasty McDowell talks about his method of fast fermentation for lagers. And basically, you can get a lager fermented in easily under two weeks and possibly even be drinking it in that amount of time. Uh, and the thing is using an ale yeast is not really going to speed things up because in order to make an acceptable lager, it's still going to take a week or so to ferment and it's still going to need to be cold conditioned for a little bit afterwards. I've had great success with pseudo lagers using Y yeast 1007, uh, very clean yeast. It works well at low temperatures. But basically, the theory is you want to start at a low lager-like temperature for maybe the first three or four days. And by that point, your gravity should have dropped to about 50% of the original gravity. And you can start raising the temperature. Uh, there's different methods. Uh, Marshall has one on brewlosophy. There's the tasty method in the book. But basically, you raise the temperature around 5 degrees per day until you get to uh, your final gravity. And then you crash it down to uh, drop out all the yeast and particulates in the beer and uh, start the cold conditioning process. So, after all that rambling, the basic answer is yes, you can make an acceptable lager using an ale yeast if you use a very, very clean ale yeast, but it's not really going to gain you much in terms of time over the fast lager fermenting schedule. Yeah, and I'll concur with that. I mean, I've done a fast lager, and I mean, unless I'm using a particular yeast strain, like say the Munich strain, which requires a diastole rest and gets kind of funny and really does benefit from some time. I think almost any sort of clean lager uh, strain will allow you to turn something around super quick. And you already have the hardest part of the equation uh, cracked. You have your temperature control. So if you have that, right. you're done. You can do you can yeah. do a lager in under two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that just don't get hung up in the old uh, theory that uh, loggers take months and months because uh, they don't, and it's easy to do a great logger quickly. There you go. So uh, Drew gets to answer the next one. It's from Jason James via Facebook, yep. and Jason says, uh, Quick question. I'm looking to ferment an IPA with the Y-Yeast 1028 London Ale Strain. My buddy says that I just need to keep it in the 60 to 72 degree range, but everything I've heard from people more experienced is to start low in the 60s and raise the temperature for better flavor. What are your thoughts? Well, okay, since I'm one of the people who usually 
touts the mantra of start low, run high. I will say, I don't think it matters with something like 1028. Now, the reason why I like to start something low is is because I want to suppress ester formation and sometimes encourage phenol formation. That's the reason why I do it with Saison yeast, for instance. Uh, Also, it helps discourage the formation of uh, fusel alcohols. But with something like 1028, I think as long as you're keeping the temperature steady in that range, you're fine. Uh, I don't think that that strain particularly needs any sort of start low, run high. So most of the time when you hear me talk about that, you'll hear me talk about it in the context of Belgian ales. Because I believe a lot of those Belgian yeah, and strains. Yeah, I, I pretty much, I, I do that pretty much for every beer that I make. But that's because I generally like really clean fermentation profiles with uh, really few esters or uh, or phenols in them. So, I, and the answer, so I guess my answer to the question would be, it depends. It depends on what you're going for. Uh for something like an IPA, especially if you're going to making an English IPA, you might want to start it a bit higher so you could get some of those esters. On the other hand, if you want to uh, suppress them, keep the uh, profile a little bit cleaner, start it low, and then ramp it up at the end to finish. So either way is valid. It just depends on uh, what you want the finished product to be like. Yeah, see, now let's be frank. I suspect that you do the exact same fermentation schedule for all your yeast because you can't remember the other ones because you forgot them. <laughs> no, I, I do it because it makes beers that I like. Uh, I, I write things down so I don't have to worry if I forget them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. He's skeptical, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, next question. From Stephen Wright via email, he says, here's a question for your next Q&A. I was told by a local homebrew store employee that crystal malts do not add appreciable sugar to the wort, just flavor and color. This doesn't make any sense to me. Good thinking, Stephen. According to what I was told, a smash beer using, say, Crystal 40 would result in a very low alcohol beer. When I set up a recipe in Beersmith, crystal malts certainly affect the gravity. Can you clarify this for me? I wonder where said employee got his ideas. <laughs> yeah, so do I. And this is a good time to say that uh, not all homebrew store employees uh, don't know what they're talking about, but not all homebrew store employees do know what they're talking about. Uh Definitely, crystal malts will add sugars to your wort and increase the gravity. That's pretty darn easy to uh, discern by taking a pound of crystal malt and steeping slash mashing it and seeing what kind of gravity you get out. Uh, Obviously, there's going to be something there. Now, possibly what this store employee was thinking of was the fact that uh, crystal malt sugars are not as fermentable as some other malts. So they may not ferment down as far. Maybe that's where he got the uh, the line about resulting in a very low alcohol beer. But yes, you will definitely get sugars out of a crystal malt, and they will increase your work gravity. Right? Yeah. See, and my other thought was on where the homebrew employee came up with this piece of knowledge was from a confusion with more darkly roasted grains. You know, your black patents, your roasted barley's, your carafas which really don't add any sugar, but they add a lot of color and flavor. Right. Um, so, but I mean, but, but they do add some for sure. Yeah. But, but very, very low. I mean, and so what yeah. I, what I think 
what I would guess if we're going to give uh, our homebrew employee, our hardworking homebrew, homebrew store employee, the benefit of the doubt, I would say that they got momentarily confused on the difference between roasted malts and crystal malts in that way. Sure, sure. We'll say that. And our last question for this week comes from Eric Pierce, a.k.a. one of our Igors, uh, who says, Regarding the I Dream of Genie Cream Ale recipe from Brew Files Episode 2, The Crushable Cream Ale, I'm thinking 1450, Denny's favorite from Y East, would, might work well with a cream ale. Any reason why not? I'd be interested in any pros and cons. Denny. <laughs> I guess I'm the con. Hmm. Um, you know what? I have been asked this question a lot of times, and I always kind of felt like, man, it probably would have too full a mouthfeel for a cream ale, because that's one of the things that I like about it a lot. But that shows what happens when I guess at things, because I have now spoken with people who've used it for cream ale and reported really good results. So, Eric, buddy, go for it, man. Uh, give it a try. Tell us what you think. Yeah, I suspect the answer, if you asked any anything about 1450, will always come back with a positive response. Hey, Denny, can I use 1450 to make a cake? Hey, Denny, can I use 1450 as a substitute for Vegemite? Yes. <laughs> well, definitely as a substitute for Vegemite, no doubt about that. <laughs> so there is a reason it's Denny's favorite. Yeah, that's right. It, it It is a versatile yeast. It does have a full mouthfeel, and apparently you can use it for things that I never would have guessed you could use it for. So... Give it a try. What can I say? And I get no royalties when you buy that yeast. Okay. It is time for our quick tip of the week. And we've stolen one from somebody else because our best ideas always are stolen from somebody else. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about it, Drew? Sure. And it's even better because not only did we steal it from somebody else, we stole it from somebody else who gave it for us to use in something else that we've already used it for and now we're using it. <laughs> It's efficiency. That's right. That's a, recycled, a recycled stolen tip. All right. And so this uh, tip comes from actually last week's uh, Brew Files episode from Jay Ankeny. And Jay, Jay uh, does not like glass carboys. He's not alone in this hatred of glass carboys. But years ago, he decided that he wanted to find a different solution. But now, unlike a lot of us who would switch over to plastic buckets like Denny has, or like me, who I've switched over to stainless steel kegs, or maybe you're super fancy and you have a stainless steel conical. Ooh, lucky you. De uh, Jay went the uh, homebrewers route and actually picked up a couple of spark sparklets water bottles. And so now we always tell people you can't use sparklet water bottles to ferment beer in because they're damn near impossible to clean. All those ridges that they use to give stability to the plastic make it really hard to actually you know clean those surfaces. But Jay got around that by, well, not putting the beer on those surfaces. So he actually goes out and he buys two milliliter 18 by 36 inch polyethylene bags which are food safe and are used for actually, uh, what do you say? Uh, sanitizing uh, medical instruments via gamma radiation. So incredible Hulk beer. And he actually goes wow. and slides the bag into the sparklets water bottle, uh, fluffs it out a little bit, and then racks the beer directly into that, ferments the beer in the bag, and then racks the beer back out of the bag, throws the bag away. So his sparklets water bottle never actually comes into contact with the wort. So, Easy, peasy, simple to clean clean up. And if you look in the last episode, well, we have a link to where you can buy those bags. But uh, be warned, you do have to buy like a thousand of them, which means that you might want to get into a deal with some of your buddies. <laughs> yeah, right. And we'll uh, we'll copy that link over to uh, the link for this show, too, so that you don't have to go back and dig it up. So I guess you've got the uh, something other this week also. Yeah. And so not only is it been April's Fool's Day and Session Beer Day. But as we record this, 
baseball season has finally started again, which means that my long national nightmare of the period of time between the Super Bowl and the start of baseball season is over, and I can watch some sports again. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Uh, but this is this is actually about my favorite form of baseball, which is not the pros, even though I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan. It's about minor league baseball. And I have always, always loved watching minor league ball games much more than I ever have watching major league. Mostly because the guys that are playing for peanuts, they're playing largely on emotion. And because they're not the pros, they still make mistakes. Uh, it leads to a more exciting game in my mind. But ESPN, yeah, definitely. Yeah, ESPN does a whole series, that, uh, you know, the E60 series, where it's kind of their digital magazine. And a couple of years back, they did a story that, well, I have to say something positive about the Yankees. As a Red Sox fan, that's really hard to do. But the uh, Yankees affiliate Trenton Thunder actually came up with a promotion, and they've been doing it now for several years, where they have the Trenton Thunder Bat Dog. And it's a a couple (laughs) generations of golden retrievers that they've trained to go out and fetch the bats after they've been hit and bring them back in. And, you know, so it's up on YouTube. I'll include the the link to this particular piece. It's about uh, 12, 13, 14 minutes long. And it's incredibly well done because it's told from the point of view of the son of the original bat dog who becomes a bat dog himself and, you know, narrated by a comedian and damned if I didn't get all welled up and teary because it was uh, everything that I love minor league baseball dogs and sappy emotional things that make you want to kind of go, I'm not crying. You're crying. So there you go. The ESPN E60 Trenton Thunder Bat Dog. Uh, I will include a link to that because if you watch that and don't get just a little teary-eyed, I don't know you, man. (laughs) Cool. I can't wait to see it. Okay. I've got a cat here meowing at me to get fed, so I think it's time to say thanks for listening to this episode of Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to support us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. Drew hangs out on the Reddit Home Brewing Forum. I'm on the AHA Forum and a whole bunch of other beer forums out there. You can find us just about anywhere. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, you can email me at denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 